Hello and welcome to this week's of Photographic Life. I find it satisfying that what I've done in photography has had so much influence in how people take photographs and what they look at and how they look at things. I had no real respect for good technique because I didn't know what it was. I was self-taught, so that stuff didn't matter to me. I can't remember when William Klein's images first entered my consciousness and burned themselves into my retina. They seemed to have always been there. They were there in the vast multicoloured Mr. Freedom posters in a changing room in the jean shop Fiorucci in the King's Road in the early 1970s, in the dense black and white grain of his New York contacts, which I pored over whilst at college in the 1980s. And finally, in Tatler magazine, which I art directed throughout the 1990s. Klein's images were the images I wanted to capture. They were the images that inspired me and infuriated me. How did he do it? How did he see these moments? How did he remain so subversive? How could he be such a great photographer and design such great books all on his own? How could he make such a dismissive and forward-thinking film like Where Are You, Polly Magoo? And capture the young Cassius Clay and the older, wiser Muhammad Ali in the thriller in Manila? How could he create documentaries that followed no rules, that made their own rules and then broke those rules? William Klein, how did you do it? I needed to know, and I needed to know badly. There was only one way to find out. I had to commission him and meet him. In 1991, commissioning a photographer was not a straightforward or easy business. William Klein did not need to send me a card with his phone number on it. He was a photographic god and he was shooting very few stills at the time. Klein was at that time a filmmaker who exhibited and sold his stills archive. He rarely added to that archive. He was therefore not on the commissioning circuit and uncontactable unless you knew someone else who had his number. Fortunately, Robin Muir, then picture editor on Vogue, had a number for Klein, but he also had a warning. Now, I forget the exact words he used, but they were definitely to the effect that Klein wasn't easy. I braced myself and dialed the number. A few long dialing tones later, the unmistakable voice of Klein came on the line. His direct no-nonsense approach combined with his heavily accented Parisian Brooklyn accent instantly made me stumble over my words. I was speaking to a photographic legend and I suddenly felt very small and unworthy. Our conversation began badly as I garbled my suggestion that he might like to photograph the French-Canadian contemporary dance troupe La 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 Human Steps for me and for Tatler magazine. You can do whatever you want, I spewed out. I will not ask anything of you. Whatever ideas you have are the ideas we will go with. He said that he wasn't really shooting stills anymore. He was shooting films, films of dancers, but that he was frustrated with the complicated process and having to deal with finances. So yes, he would do it. What was the magazine again? He asked. Tatler. It's a Condé Nast magazine, I repeated. 
I then received a full rundown on the realities from Klein's perspective of working for Condé Nast as a photographer. But despite his tirade, he was going to do it. And yes, the fee was okay. We were on. I had commissioned William Klein and it felt good. The next step was to give the people who oversaw La 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 Human Steps Klein's phone number and let them arrange the time and place for the shoot. I was involved no more, and I heard no more from either of them until I received a call from the Human Steps people. The shoot had gone well, but they had been threatened with being arrested, along with Klein for creating a public disturbance on the Paris metro. Evidently, Klein's idea for the shoot was to take the whole troupe of physical theatre dancers I should say, onto the metro to take over a carriage and to have the dancers throw themselves around that carriage, hang from the ceiling and in general turn an afternoon metro carriage into a moving underground performance space. The prints that arrived from Klein within a few weeks confirmed everything I had been told and they were pure Klein. I loved them, and evidently so did he, because they appeared in his 1994 book In and Out of Fashion, as well as inside an issue of Tatler. Perhaps to tie in with the launch of the book, my memory is good, but not that good. Later that year, it was announced that Klein would be coming to London, as some of his work and films were going to be exhibited at what was then one of the few galleries for photography in London, Hamilton's. The chance to meet him was too important to pass up for myself and a few photographers I knew in London at the time. This was an age before the many photographic talks, debates and festivals of today. Klein had not been heard of for years and the opening night of the show was a major event in the photographic calendar for that year. Entrance was by invitation only, but it was never difficult to gain entrance to Hamilton's on a private view night and the gallery was packed. I took my time to find the right moment to approach Klein, and when an opportunity to introduce myself presented itself, I took a deep breath and said hello to one of my photographic heroes. He was immediately courteous, friendly and conversational. We spoke of his near arrest and how much he had enjoyed shooting the dancers for me, and just for a few moments we felt like friends. He grabbed a copy of a catalogue of his work and in his distinctive graphic handwriting declared that this was, in fact, the case. To my friend, he wrote, on the cover. And that was enough to make that catalogue the most treasured item in my collection of photography books to this day. I realised that whilst I had been speaking to Klein, a few young photographers, I was of a similar age at the time, who were just making their way in the industry, had been watching our conversation. Immediately they wanted to know what we had been talking about and asked to be introduced to Klein. There were two photographers who at the time I knew well and who today are internationally recognised for their work, who were the most persistent in asking me to introduce them to him which I was happy to do. One chatted briefly to him without incident. The other began his conversation by praising Klein's work for Harper's Bazaar with the great art director Alexei Brodovich. Klein had never worked for Bazaar or Brodovich, which he informed the young photographer clearly and directly. The photographer skulked off, suitably embarrassed. It was vintage Klein, delivered with his characteristic laugh. Now that photographer mixes with world leaders, I wonder if he remembers his first meeting with William Klein. 
My next meeting came a few years later, thanks to the rebellious nature of the French public and their decision to riot in the streets of Paris. I was still art directing Tatler magazine, and I had finally been given a further commissioning opportunity for Klein, which I felt was worthy of a call. Paris was rioting, and I wanted Klein to be on the streets recording it for us. A quick phone call, and he was out shooting, creating images filled with aggression, movement and grain, just as I had expected and hoped. It remains the commission I am most proud of, and the edited images ran over eight pages of a social magazine for the aristocracy and privileged. The clash of cultures could not have been more pronounced, or in my mind, perfect. The images of Paris marked the end of my opportunities to work with Klein. But my love of his work and attitude never faded, and I began a mission to own every one of the books featuring his work published. From essential classics, such as Life is Good and Good for You in New York, and Tokyo to the lesser collected In and Out of Fashion and Italia. It is a Thursday evening in 2012. I am sitting dressed in black tie at the Sony World Photo Awards dinner. Why? Because Klein is about to be presented with an award, an outstanding contribution to photography award. I am on a table next to his, and I can see that his seat is empty. The various awards are awarded, but there is no sign of Klein until just before the final presentation to Klein himself. It is at this point that a stooped white-haired figure is shuffled in from the side of the stage, clutching a walking stick. He is carefully positioned in the seat reserved for him. I wonder who it is until the penny slowly sinks. It's Klein. The fifteen years or so since we last met and spoke suddenly seem to be very long indeed. Of course I expected him to have aged, just as I certainly have. But I did not expect such a fierce figure to have become such a shadow of his former self. I was shocked, upset, and I left. The following day I had arranged to meet him, to talk with him about his work and discuss his feelings, opinions and beliefs on photography and filmmaking at that time. I had been looking forward to the verbal jousting we had always engaged in, but now I was just fearful of the kind of conversation we would have. Seeing him so frail had made me realise just how many years had passed since we last spoke. I arrived early, as I always do, to ensure that my head was right and grabbed a coffee and a comfy seat to await my meeting. The minutes ticked by and a member of his entourage apologised that my prearranged time for the meeting to start had passed. I said it was no problem. Time passed. Again, an apology was offered. Time passed. Another apology was offered. Even more time passed, and now it was over an hour since our meeting was meant to begin. Finally, two members of his team appeared in front of me to apologise and to inform me that Klein had fallen asleep and that there would be no meeting that day. In a way, I was relieved. I had already decided that the meeting was a mistake. The Klein I had seen the night before was not the one I wanted to speak with. I would find it too sad. I said my goodbyes and left. As days passed, I wrestled with my decision to not push for another meeting with Klein. I wanted to hear what he had to say about photography and filmmaking today, but I had feared that he would not be able to do this. A fellow journalist who I respect had spoken with Klein recently and reported back that his conversation had gone exactly the way that I feared mine would. But I couldn't get rid of the feeling that I had chickened out. 
I felt that I had to give it one more go. I took a risk and rang the number in Paris I had rung all those years previously. I still used the same filofax I did then, so I had no difficulty in finding it. When I tried to get hold of him for the first time, After a few rings, Klein answered the phone. His voice was strong, exactly as it had always been. I introduced myself and tried to remind him of our previous meetings and work together. He didn't remember anything I mentioned. He knew nothing of Tatler magazine, but the mention of its Condé Nast publisher sent him off once again into a series of remembrances and opinions about them, just as it had the very first time we spoke. He then stopped himself and said that he had people coming and that he was very busy. I suggested we speak another time and he was non-committal. I said thanks for sparing the few minutes he had and put the phone down. I didn't ring back. I was happy with the past and with his images. But I did go onto YouTube to find some clips from his films. Maybe from the influential Who Are You, Polly Magoo, the seminal Muhammad Ali the Greatest or the anarchic Mr. Freedom. I found none of these, but I did find an interview with Klein at a Mexican film festival in which he was the Klein I remembered. In the interview, he fills the interviewer's questions with dismissive, raw humour. He gives insight into his processes, the social context of his work, and how he owed his whole career to the American army. It was what I had hoped my interview would be, and more. It had everything I had hoped to discover and share with you. If you want to find William Klein, I know where to look. Type William Klein Cinema into the YouTube search panel and then click on William Klein Regis Dialogue with Paulina Del Paso. That's where you will find William Klein. And of course, in every image he shot and filmed. But to me, the spirit of Klein is best summed up in his own words. I came from the outside. The rules of photography didn't interest me. There were things you could do with a camera that you couldn't do with any other medium. Grain, contrast, blur, cockeyed framing, eliminating or exaggerating grey tones and so on. I thought it would be good to show what's possible, to say that this is as valid of a way of using the camera as conventional approaches. That's my William Klein. As I am sure you are aware, William Klein died just over a week or so ago. So similarly did Neil Kirk, a great fashion photographer and portrait photographer, Richard Bamber, the photojournalist, and the great filmmaker Jean-Luc Godard. That cloud they're all sitting on is getting very busy. I really don't think there's space for anybody else. This week, we welcome to the podcast Richard Bram to explain to us what photography means to him in under five minutes. Bram was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1952 and is an American street photographer now based in London. He attended Arizona State University in Tempe, where he received a BSc in political science and worked in business before becoming a professional photographer. Bram lived in Louisville, Kentucky, moved to London in 1997 and then to New York City in 2008 and back to London around 2016. He's published two books of candid public photographs, Street Photography 2006, a compact collection of black and white photographs taken around the world from 1988 to 2005 and New York 2016 a greatest hit album of work made between 2005 and 2015 whilst living in the city. 
His work is held in the permanent collections of the Bibliothèque Nationale de France in Paris, the George Eastman Museum in Rochester, New York, and the Museum of London, as well as having been exhibit, exhibited, I should say, internationally since 1991. He is represented by galleries in Mexico, Germany, France, and the USA. Hi there. I'm Richard Bram, a 70-year-old American-British photographer living in London. Grant Scott has kindly asked me a difficult question. What does photography mean to me? And there's all sorts of answers, but the obvious one is everything. If you ask me what I do, I say I'm a photographer. It's how I define myself as I go forth into the world. I see life through a lens with little rectangles around it. But there's another more complicated answer, which I realized very early on. I became a photographer in 1984 in Louisville, Kentucky. About a year in after beginning a base as a public relations and event photographer, I got my first really big gig, the Kentucky Fried Chicken Bluegrass Festival. I was working with another very well-established photographer named John Nation. We later became very close friends and colleagues and worked together on a lot of different things. But at this point, it was the first time we'd worked together. So we took a walk in between acts to take a break. And he asked me, so, Bram, why are you in this? What, what, are, you, what are you trying to do? And I said, well, John, first, I have to make a living. I got to eat. And I want to do that doing something that I actually enjoy as opposed to all the other things I did which I didn't enjoy. Second, I want to be good at what I do. I want to make good photographs. Well, since you ask, we're all mortal, John. We're all going to die. The only thing I'll leave behind as I'm not married, I don't have any children, will be photographs. And I want to make some photographs that people will want to look at when I'm gone and Everyone who knew me personally is gone. If I achieve that, well, that's about as close to immortality as any of us get. Since then, I've gone on to do a lot of different things, but all photographic. And I've made some photographs that are in museum collections in America and several places in Europe. I've published a few books. So I suppose I've accomplished a little bit of that. Another answer to the fundamental question is it's photography is my inner state expressed outwardly. I don't make any pretense of objectivity. Every frame I make is subjective. If I'm tired or if I'm rested, if I'm well fed or if I'm hungry, happy or sad, that's going to show in the photographs. It's a way or at least my way of making some sense of the world or at least helping me to deal with it. And that's not bad. That's a lot. Thank you for listening. Thank you for contributing, Richard. A very appropriate contribution this week. Once again, the serendipity of chance raising its hand. Take care. Mm-hmm. 